0: Hey church, my name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders at Church in the Square. Let's grab our Bibles and open to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. I bring you greetings from my kitchen. And I know that many of us are um, still heavy with the news that we are s- stepping into our uh, another month of stay-at-home orders and In the middle of all of that, uh, we're praying for one another, praying for you as an elder team, along with the deacons, uh, group leaders, uh, praying that God would continue to work in us, continue to help us to know how to serve one another well. And so as always, if if there are needs that you are facing, would you share those with your brothers and sisters, share those with your group? If there are things in you that you are fearful about, frustrated about, um, if you're on the front lines or if a loved one is on the front lines of care, Right now, we want to know how we can be uh, in this together. And, and we get to, though that's been a mantra, right, that we're in this together, we get to truly live that out as followers of Jesus. We, we are in this together and that we are bound together by God's spirit and by his word. And so ultimately, there is a unique kinship that we get to have even as we're separated um, and continue to walk through a very unique season and so I just I just want to continue to encourage us to bring these things into the light. And in fact, if you're just over it, if you're frustrated not because of the virus, but frustrated because of some of the orders and edicts around it, let, let's be a people who talk about this and walk with one another in it. And and maybe some of us have more understanding than others or a different perspective. Christians ought to be those, though with diverse opinions and and ideas and perspectives about what is going on in the world, we ultimately fully, completely agree that we go to God and we go to his word in the middle of all of that, and we anchor ourselves in that. So we all need to be encouraged in that in some way, I'm sure. And so um, if there are those needs, if there are those questions, concerns, let's be a people who listen well. Let's be a people Um, who talk about that together. Again, we'll be in Romans as we continue uh, this series. One of my favorite uh, writers, David Brooks, who writes a column in the New York Times in his book, The Road to Character, recounts a time when he was driving home from work. And as he was driving home, he was listening to a radio broadcast and that broadcast was actually rebroadcasting old broadcasts from the days after World War II when the United States had obviously um, defeated one of the most nefarious and sinister regimes in the history of the world. And uh, Brooks paid careful attention to how the American people were speaking about this, how they were speaking about this victory. And he was struck by their humility. One of the hosts in in fact said that today, our deep down feeling is one of humility. In fact, Ernie Pyle, who was a correspondent who was on the ground during World War II, though he passed away before the uh, this telecast, wrote about that in an article. And one of the uh, hosts of that broadcast read his words from that article. And, and that article read, we did not win it, that is the war, because destiny created us better than all other people. I hope that in victory, we are more grateful than proud. That we are more grateful than proud. This sort of corporate self-effacement was something that wove itself within the fabric of that generation. To be sure, this season of American history has many blemishes to it, before and after. And yet there's something about this uh, communal heart that many people had and shared of thankfulness, of humility, of gratefulness. That was the mood. And it's striking to us, isn't it? Brooks goes on to say that after he listened to that radio uh, broadcast, he got home. He was on his way home. He gets home, turns on the television, and begins to watch a football game. And shortly after he turns the game on, uh, the quarterback of one of the teams throws a two-yard completion. And a defensive player, obviously... um, tackles this person pretty quickly. And and that defensive player who makes that that tackle after only two yards pops up, sort of sticks out out his chest, pumps his fist in the air, celebrates himself by himself, and goes crazy over a two-yard gain. And obviously, like, Brooks couldn't help. But note, it occurred to me, that I had just watched more self-celebration after a two-yard gain than I had heard after the United States won World War II. Now, this is not an issue with uh, a football player or really even about a war, but ultimately there's something that is described there, something that is exposed there, that really is now part of the cultural moment that you and I are a part of. See, in uh, 2000, or rather in 1950, high school seniors were interviewed and asked if they thought that they were very important, if they were a very important person. And in 1950, about 12% high school seniors said that they believed that they were very important. They did a similar survey in 2005, and well over 80% of seniors believed that they were very important. Similarly, in 1976, um, a number of people were asked whether or not they, or rather what their life goals were, and fame is one of the things that they could select, was listed 15th out of 16 options. They did, again, a similar survey now in 2007, and well over 51% of those who took this survey said that they wanted to be famous more than anything else. More recently, just a couple of years ago, a collection of 10 and 12-year-old children were asked what they thought that life was all about, and the number one answer, or what they ought to pursue, the number one answer was fame. So not only is there this self-celebration, but there is even a pursuit in that celebration of becoming famous. To be sure, social media provides us with incredible opportunities to be famous literally for anything. It's not odd to us anymore that there are celebrity chefs, that there are mom blogs with millions of followers, that there's such a thing as celebrity pastors. This would have made no sense to so many different generations, and yet for us, it's normative. There are literally people who are famous for being famous. What is that? Famous for being famous. So essentially, this self-esteem project that many parents participated in in the 80s and 90s has swollen into this gospel of self-trust and self-centeredness that really is unavoidable. Just one generation to the next, we desire to be seen We, in fact, believe that we should be seen. We desire to be known and believe that we should be known. We desire to be loved and and are told and believe that we should be loved. We desire to be set apart. To be sure, humility is still something that many people value as sort of just a cultural principle or a moral value. However, very few people actually pursue humility. Why? Why? because humility is the exact opposite of what you have to do in order to become famous, or so we suppose. Theologian Lisa Fulham uh, makes this plain in the way that she articulates and describes humility. She says, humility is a virtue of self-understanding in context, acquired by the practice of other-centeredness. Humility is the opposite of of standing out. It's being known within community. It's being known within context, she says. Humility is the opposite of self-centeredness. It's other-centeredness. And I would add that ultimately as a follower of Jesus, biblically, the context we are to be known in more than any other is that we are in Christ. And the one whom we are to be centered on more than any other is Christ. And this produces humility. This, this is much, I believe, on Paul's mind as he is writing to the Romans in the first century who were steeped in a culture perhaps not much unlike our own, Paul will tell them that he is set apart, but not because of self-honor or self-love like many of the Romans would have participated in. He has been separated by and for the gospel. And so I hope what we realize together today is that there's a fundamental difference between Desiring and believing and trying to separate yourself and being one who is separated and set apart by God. Because what are we going to do when the lights fade? What are we going to do when the likes don't come? Or, or even worse, what if the likes do come and they don't satisfy? What happens when the followers start following somebody else? What if that person who, in fact, you, you're like, I don't even want to be famous. I just want this person to see me. What happens when they ghost you? What happens when they don't like, when they don't love, when they don't retweet, when they don't share, when they don't give you the attention that you crave? Now, this is not going to be a message, a sermon on humility. This is going to be a sermon about being seen and about who it is we believe we are when we are seen, when we are loved, when we are valued. You see, I think ultimately what it comes down to is that fame is about attention. And if we don't believe that we will receive attention from others or from the people we desire it from, we look to even strangers or the internet and social media to give us attention. And if we don't, and if we do that, what we are essentially saying is, I don't trust that God sees me, I don't trust that He ultimately is the one who is at work in my life, who is the one who gives me value, who who loves me, who satisfies me, who fulfills me. And I think it's when we get a picture of that, when we understand that God does see us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, that not only will we be satisfied in relationship with him, but we also will become humble because receiving that kind of grace produces humility in us. And so how do we know that we're seen? I think it will be centered around this idea, this this doctrinal yet pastoral concept that Paul will write about uh, being set apart and being separated by God. And so this is sort of where we're headed. This is where we will be considering God's word today. And so let's ask for his help as we come to Romans chapter one. Uh, Heavenly Father, we ask for your forgiveness as I even say these words, I know how often I look for adulation and praise and love and attention, perhaps from you, but, but I want you and something else. I want you and other eyes and other people and more attention. You, you often, Father, forgive me, are not enough. And so I ask for your help today in my own heart. Help me. To understand better what it means that you see me, that you see us, and that you give value, and that you are the one who loves, and that you are the one who ultimately nourishes and satisfies and fulfills us. And so, with that, with that in mind, God, I, I pray for my brothers. I pray for my sisters that that this will expose things in our life that perhaps we're not proud of, things that we need to confess to you, habits of the heart that perhaps we've never even named or had language for? God, would you reveal that? Would you reveal that to my brothers and sisters as they're gathered around their uh, in their living rooms, as they're gathered around kitchen tables, as they are listening to this, as they're watching this, as they're gathered with their groups? And this, Father, would you reveal truth in the middle of darkness? And even as we considered last week, that if there's shame around this, Father, would you clothe in righteousness? Would you wash away our guilt and shame? So we thank you that you're not the God who just exposes difficult truth. You are the God who heals, knit back, knits back together, and helps us in this. And so, God, we pray that what you reveal, would you heal? That God, what you expose? Would you bring back together? Would you, would you bring redemption and peace and help in all of this? And so help me. Help me to be clear. Help me to be responsible with your word. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen. All right, Romans chapter one, verse one. Yep, yeah, that's right. Uh, we are still in verse one, for your joy and for mine. Romans chapter one, verse one, reads this way. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul has already told us, as we considered a couple of weeks ago, that he's a slave. And just last week, we understood that Paul is saying that he is a called Apostle that he has been set apart for a unique calling in apostolic ministry. And and now he says that he is set apart by the gospel for the gospel. And this this idea, this separation, is not new in the apostolic ministry of Paul. This is something that Jesus taught about. And he gives us one of the most ominous pictures in all of Scripture in Matthew chapter 25. So turn there with me. Just to the left, a couple of books of the Bible. Jesus is speaking about the final judgment. He is speaking about himself as the shepherd who is dividing out, separating the sheep and the goats. The sheep and the goats. Jesus here is pictured as the sovereign uh, Lord, the sovereign judge over all of those who, who are coming, even his angels. And he's sitting on his throne. It's this brilliant picture of his majesty. Look at verse 31, Matthew 25, verse 31 When the Son of Man comes, Jesus says, in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. See, when Jesus returns, he will separate people. He he will make a dividing line between them. The shepherd is the one who graciously, powerfully knows who his sheep are and knows how to protect them, knows how to divide them, knows how to bring separation between them, those who are his, and those who are not. Reading on, then in verse 46, so move your eyes down to the last verse in chapter 25. After he explains that, that the sheep representing the righteous will be accepted, welcomed into the next age, into the, the age in the presence of God with him because of the way that they lived within this kingdom ethic. Uh, they, they treated him as king. They lived within the kingdom ef- ethic. And the way that, that they lived, they, they treated others, those around them, as if they were, they were treating, loving, serving, caring for Jesus himself. And the goats did the exact opposite as the unrighteous. And, and here's what he says, verse 46, that this separation is not just momentary and immediate. And these will go away into eternal punishment and the righteous into eternal life. So Jesus' illustration is that he ultimately is the righteous judge who divides between the unrighteous, the goats, and the, the righteous, the sheep, those who are not in Christ and those who are in Christ, those who are part of the kingdom and those who are not. This is the eternal trajectory of their, of their lives and their worship and their allegiance. And for many of us, this is an alarming picture of Jesus. He's on the throne. Everyone, all nations, his angels are are before him. And he separates and he divides. The whole course of church history has been unable to settle settle with any sort of universal acceptance and universal understanding and logic to harmonize the God who welcomes and the God who divides. He welcomes by grace and he, he separates by justice. See, and I think the reason we've had such a challenge throughout the course of history this is because this is not just a momentary event. This is not just a future reality. This is an eternal quality of who God is. See, he is the one who separates. He is the one who divides. We we often think that God is the one who unifies, that he brings together. And, And that's good. That's right. He does. He absolutely does that. But he doesn't just unite Jesus in the church. He doesn't just unite his people with one another. He doesn't just bring heaven and earth together. He also separates. He separates his people from the world. He separates light and darkness. He separates his people to live with distinction and purpose. And this is how the Apostle Paul sort of rounds out his personal introduction in Romans chapter 1, verse 1. That he is numbered along with those who Jesus describes as sheep in the age to come. When he comes, when Jesus returns, and Jesus will return, when Jesus returns, sets all things to right, sits his judge, Paul is saying, by God's grace, I am one who has been called to be set apart, to be separated by Jesus. Separated by God as in the day of judgment. So, so look at it again, back to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 1, that third portion there, that Paul is set apart for the gospel. The first two points of the introduction sort of work together in explaining that Paul, contrary to the rampant love of honor and self-honor, self-glorification which has persisted in Rome, that, that he, Paul, is both a slave, beholding completely to his master Jesus, and yet he is powerfully called to the work of apostolic ministry. He's unworthy, yet worthy, made worthy by Jesus. There's, there's no better way to quickly describe Saul of Tarsus' story or Paul's story. That he is one who is unworthy and yet he has been made worthy by Jesus. I mean, isn't that the way to describe any follower of Jesus? Someone who is unworthy, made worthy by Jesus. Unworthy, yet called. Sinful, yet forgiven. Dead, yet made alive. Lost, but found. Slave, yet, yet called freely to the purposes of of our master Jesus. So from the outset, Paul is not just articulating a a personal theological conviction. He's he's communicating to this whole cultural moment that he is a part of and saying that he is set apart, made distinct by God, not by himself, by Jesus, not by his own, own honor, And so Martin Lloyd-Jones, who began teaching through Romans in October 1955, he began by articulating, Lloyd-Jones did, that the occasion of Paul's letter is not a scholarly lecture, but rather worship. The reason Paul is writing is that we, that his first readers, and that we by God's spirit would worship God. That we would be stirred, that we would be overwhelmed, that we would get a picture of God, that we would celebrate and savor who God is. Why? Because worship, worshiping God, dismantles pride, dismantles self-honor. You see, you can't worship God and glorify yourself. When we bow the knee to Jesus, when we worship him, when we adore God, when we just sit and read the scriptures, not not even writing down takeaways, but just allowing the word of God to be read over us, to be prayed over us, to read for ourselves and just to sit and enjoy. When we do that, we just behold him and our hearts are drawn to him. We cannot be prideful. We cannot be arrogant. We cannot, we cannot honor ourselves. So church, worship, is still the way in which that God is defending his people from the delusions of this world. So when we go to God and worship, this is what we do. We are dismantling. We, We are making war on the cultural idols and powers of the day. And what was true in the ancient world is that the Romans couldn't believe that, that Christians would not accept all of their gods along with the God of the Bible. They didn't mind the God of the Bible. They just didn't like his exclusivity. It's very similar in thought and sort of the foundation, the grounding of thinking as we are now facing in the 21st century secular West where people can't believe we believe in any god. Why don't we just treat every other god like like sort of they they would or that they do, which is that all gods are just as unreal or just as not true as as any other. Why must we act as though exclusively that we know the one true god? See, it's it's interesting that one is an invitation to coexistence within the nat- the supernatural world. That- that's what's happening in Rome. The other is an invitation today to a coexistence within the natural world. In other words, what the temptation in Paul's day was, let's treat everything as divine, and the temptation in our day is to treat nothing ultimately as divine or supernatural or set apart. And so Paul's introduction is not just more information. It's not just more information about himself. It's a direct and immediate assault against the cultural idols of the day. Paul a slave. Paul an apostle. Paul called. Paul belonging to Christ Jesus. And with the weight of all of this, his prestige as a Roman citizen. He is the Hebrew of Hebrews, right, that he writes about elsewhere. Paul is essentially saying, no, 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 no. I I am not distinct because of any of those things. I am distinct. I am set apart because of God. So in a world that separates itself based on personal honor and personal glory, Paul is saying, I am set apart by Jesus Christ. Paul says it's all about Jesus. It's all about being called by him. All about being bound up with him. So, so this is what, from the beginning, this is what we need to understand is in Paul's mind and by God's grace, what we will grow in familiarity with about today is that separation by the will of man is destruction and separation by the will of God is salvation. Separation by the will of man or the will, or the will of a woman, the, the will of a human being is, is ultimately destruction and, and separation based on God, separation by God is salvation. See, Paul's greeting culminates within this third portion. Set apart. Look at it again. Let's look at it again, over and over again. Let's make sure that we see it. Look at Romans 1, verse 1, third portion. Set apart for the gospel of God. Paul is set apart. He's set apart for the gospel. He's set apart for the gospel of God. Set apart means, in the original language, to separate. Paul's set apartness is both vocational and what he's called to do in the work of apostolic ministry, but his vocational set-apartness must be anchored in his salvific calledness, or rather his set-apartness. His, his distinction in the way that he has been separated by God to do the work in the first century is because he's set apart by God in the womb from birth for salvation. Look at Galatians chapter 1. Turn to the right a couple of books of the Bible. So you go Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, and then you'll get to Galatians. Galatians chapter 1, verse 15. So it's just to kind of give us a little bit uh, here, Paul in Galatians 1 is ultimately defending his apostolic call, but he can't defend his apostolic call without giving clarity about his salvific call, that he was called to salvation, separated by God for his glory. Look at verse 15. He says, but when he, that, that's God, who set, who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I may preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So what he says is that all of that about This sort of unspoiled apostolic call and this unspoiled gospel that he will now present and speak and preach to the Gentiles is anchored in verse 15, that he was called, set apart before I was born, and he called me by grace. See, Paul understood that this was a divine separation. It had taken place before birth based on God's grace, possible only through Jesus and for the purposes of preaching and teaching and and spreading the gospel all over the first century world. And so God set apart and separated Paul for salvation, that he might set him apart for his vocation. This leads us to an age-old conundrum, doesn't it? But but again, let's make sure that, that our heads don't begin spinning theologically because Paul is writing this for our worship. He's writing this for our joy and for our gladness. But we have to walk through the the theological understanding of what Paul is saying, that our hearts would be rightly stirred. The Lord sharpens our minds. He softens our hearts, makes our feet ready for action. The whole person is meant to to give worship and glory to God. So so let's sharpen our minds again. So when Paul is, is talking about being set apart and separated by God, he is speaking about what theologians call sovereign election or predestination. And the timing of separation is really critical. In Paul's mind, did did you hear it in Galatians 1.15? In Paul's mind, separation, or calling, election, being chosen, takes place before birth. And it will become clearer through Romans that this is indeed not just what Paul knows about his own story, but every story of salvation. Look at Romans chapter 8. So back to the left. Go back through 2nd and 1st uh, Corinthians and Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For many of us, um, if we are familiar with any portion of Romans, it may be Romans chapter 8. We may take 10 years in Romans chapter 8. There's much to consider there. Um, only only partly joking. Uh, verse 29 in Romans chapter 8 reads this way. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. See, God does not just know what an individual will choose when they have volition, when they have cognition. God chooses before cognition. God chooses before a will can be exercised. And subsequently, he he gives us a witness, Paul does, that the election and choosing of God takes place in the womb and even before the womb. Look at Romans chapter 9, verse 10. This is not just a new product or idea or teaching of the New Testament, Paul anchors what he's teaching in, in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. Romans 9, verse 10. And we'll read verse 11 as well. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purposes, purpose of election might be, continue, not because of works but because of him who calls it is God who foreknows it is God who predestines, it is God who uh, before the acts of obedience or of self-determinism or even present, he chooses he elects, he saves see Paul saw his own and every salvation story as a result of God's predestination, sovereign election of an individual for the glory of God, for the purposes of God. This is probably, again, another really good time to remember that Romans is like like the whole Bible, a letter about God. It's about his faithfulness. It's about his love. It's about his affection. It's about what he has done and what he is doing As as one theologian, Leon Morris, makes plain, that Romans is a book about how he, that's God, acted to bring salvation, about how his justice is preserved, about how his purposes are worked out in history, about how he can be served by his people. Romans is about God. The Bible is about God, first, foremost, and forever. And so when we come to the Bible, I know many of us in our church are, are new to the Bible are not as familiar with the scriptures as we would like to be. So when we come to the Bible, we are always asking the question first and throughout, who is God? What is he like? Who is God? What is he like? And, and why, why do I bring that up here? Well, I think is that when we come to a discussion about election and predestination, we immediately think about what that doctrine potentially steals from us. Am I preaching to you yet? Are you with me? We think about what election will take from us. Well, what about my will? What about my choice? What about my my own personhood? What, What about others? What about others who are not chosen? Is it fair that they are not? Is it fair that I am and, and so we, we started getting this, this wrestling match within our, our own head and our own heart about what election steals from us. We very rarely, church, we very rarely step back and allow the cathedral of words and glory that is the doctrine of election to just step inside of that structure, that artifact of history, that, that, that building of the prestige and honor of God and just say, wow. God is glorious. He can choose before the womb. He he can choose before the foundation of the world. What a God. He elects before birth. He can call out from the womb. He can preserve before a breath is even breathed, before a, a mouth speaks, before a heart beats, before a preacher preaches, before a singer sings, before a teacher teaches. God chooses who are his people. He can save that way. What a God, what a God he is. It's incredible. (laughs) Perhaps one of the hardest truths then for us, help me God, perhaps one of the hardest truths then for us in in that kind of idea of who God is is to simply receive who God is And not require him to give an explanation. Because God is who he is without an explanation. What what, what I mean is that perhaps one of the hardest truths for our current cultural moment, this current generation, is to accept that God can do as he pleases without explanation. God can do as he pleases without explanation. Let that settle. Isn't it true that we demand an explanation from everyone? We give, like, in our culture, we very rarely give anyone the benefit of the doubt. Everyone has to explain themselves. Everyone has to give the backstory. Everyone has to explain, why did you say that? Why not that? why did you do that? why did you look that way? Why didn't you look that way? Why didn't you say that? Why were you quiet? Why were you speaking? We always have to give an explanation. God never has to give an explanation. And often, that that we're unsettled by this, this character quality of God, even though he does not owe us an answer for any of our questions. And if he were to be silent, if he were to be silent after every action he ever performed, he would be no less God. He would be no less good. He would be no less love. He would be no less faithful. He would be no less peace. He would be no less generous. He would be no less glorious. He would be no less powerful. He would be no less sovereign. He would be no less mighty. He would be no less God. He is in heaven. We are on earth. May our words be few. He is a God that does as He pleases. And yet, He is so kind and so generous and so loving that when he does not, when he is not obligated to explain his election or his predestination power, he graciously unfolds through the scriptures more of who he is that we might behold him rightly. Specifically, we learn about in terms of election is that it is always by grace. Even in Deuteronomy, back in Deuteronomy chapter seven, it's because that God loves us that he keeps his oaths and that he swore to his fa- or to our fathers. See, even in the old covenant, God's sovereign will is performed in light of his grace and his love for his people. Israel has not honored themselves enough to get God's attention, and that's why he selects them. He selects Israel by his grace, for his purposes, that Israel would be a people, a tapestry by which God would paint the character's Characteristics and qualities of his nature for the entire world to see. It would be through Israel that people would behold God. Many of us can accept God's love, I think, in terms of his gracious choice of some to eternal union with him. We think God can choose who he will. What we often have a hard time with is that God would still uh, choose some for separation or for punishment. What about the goats? we may ask. Yale professor Miroslav Volf, a Croatian who saw unthinkable violence in the Balkans throughout his life, brings, I think, some great global awareness to where we often have the luxury of asking such a question. He writes, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. It takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of this thesis that human nonviolence results from the belief in God's refusal to judge. In a sun-scorched land soaked with the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die with other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. What I think he is suggesting is that the less heinous injustice you and I have faced in our life, the, in other words, the, the, the less evil we've been exposed to, the more willing we are for God to be passive in the face of evil. The less we have been exposed to, the more willing we are for God to not punish and to not bring justice. The less evil we experience, the less we understand divine justice. And therefore, we are unwilling to believe in any God who would bring eternal consequence. God's judgment and separation of sinners from his eternal presence, even to eternal punishment, is therefore not something we could ever fathom as an extension of his love. But ultimately, if, if as uh, Wolf explains that it is God's response, particularly to injustice, particularly to sin, to those who violate his will and his way, then God is is demonstrating his love, not just for the victims of such evil and those who are marginalized and hurt by such injustice, but ultimately his understanding and his own glory of who he is. He cannot be violated. He is God. But God's love is even better than that. In the magnificence of his love, there, there is this, this tension that's created. Rachel Denholander, uh, the first woman who filed sexual abuse um, charges against Larry Nassar, the former gymnastics uh, USA Gymnastics doctor, Michigan State doctor, she addressed him in court, and in her impact statement, she said this about the Bible. She, she said directly to him in court, with incredible clarity and courage, The Bible carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And then then hear what, what she says. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found, and it will be there for you. Denholander expresses the power of God's sovereign election and grace through love, not something extended to a bunch of deserving saints and withheld from those who don't deserve it. It's just the opposite. The gospel is the transformative power that liberates and saves guilty people from the sheer and utter, or rather by the sheer and utter will of God. That's the gospel. The gospel is a dividing line for us that lasts on into eternity. So what is the gospel? The reality of being set apart, Paul writes, is is based upon and for the sake of the gospel. And gospel is one of these words that we throw around quite a bit. So turn back to Romans chapter 1 so that we might get some clarity about what the word gospel even means, particularly as the way that Paul uses it here. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. So he says that he's been set apart for the gospel of God, and then we move on to verse 2, which he promised beforehand Paul summarizes a bit here of what the gospel actually is. and, and maybe we could, just suffice to say it's Jesus himself. The gospel, yes, is a message, but it is a message about Jesus. Therefore, in verse 16, what Paul can say is that for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, the power of God. That's Jesus, that's the gospel. Paul's consistent on into 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he he says that, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, which is the gospel. He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he takes essentially like the rest of chapter 15 to express the lordship of Jesus. I mean, the rest of that chapter is given over to the idea that all things are in subjugation to Jesus Christ. And so in summary, what Paul says in Romans, what he's consistent in 1 Corinthians, as well as all of his letters, is that Jesus himself is the gospel, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is from God, that Jesus is Messiah, that Jesus is the one who is putting all things together again. That's the good news. We, we may we may say it this way, that, that Jesus lived perfectly, that Jesus died sacrificially, that Jesus was buried literally, that Jesus rose victoriously, that Jesus ascended authoritatively. And a summary of all of that content of the gospel is that Jesus himself is Lord. That word gospel has these two different roots, if you will, one being in the Old Testament and the other in... Greco- in the Greco-Roman world. In the Old Testament, the, that word gospel was used throughout um, as a word of meaning bringing good news, but more theologically, we would say that the content of the gospel, the lordship of Jesus, that the Messiah is coming in the fullness of what Jesus would do in his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension was summarized even in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 as the proto-evangelion, the first gospel announcement when we are promised in God's word that one day an offspring from the woman Eve would crush the head of the serpent. And so consistently through the old where where the, the gospel is anticipated. But then in the first century world, with this sort of backdrop of hebrew literature literature and biblical history we have this gospel content where where caesar was was viewed as the gospel and the gospel was the lordship of caesar and all of his edicts were were viewed as good news and his ordinances were divine and supreme and so paul really and other new testament writers take this idea of caesar's authority of caesar's lordship within the cultural moment of Jesus' arrival, and then the church uh, starting. And they say, no, 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 no. Over and against Caesar, Jesus is Lord. And so, at one and the same time, as Paul is writing to these these Roman Christians, many of whom are Gentiles, steeped within this particular Roman culture and world, and he's writing, remember, Paul as a Jew, but also as a Roman citizen, and he explains to his readers that the gospel of God is Jesus Christ— who both fulfills the ancient promises of God as the one who brings good news, the one who is good news, and he is Lord over and against Caesar, that his word is supreme over Caesar, that his power is supreme over Caesar, that his lordship is supreme over Caesar, that his kingdom is supreme over Caesar, that he is king of kings and Lord of lords. So what Paul is saying is that Jesus is the gospel. That Jesus ultimately is set apart. Jesus is different. Jesus is separate from anyone and everyone. He is holy. He is special. He is unique. He is supreme. He is beautiful. He is glorious. He is the one deserving of fame and glory and honor. See, what Paul is doing and even his announcement of the gospel in Romans and in Corinthians and all of the different churches that he writes to, as he is proclaiming the gospel, he is also contradicting the gospels of the day. He is also speaking against the temptations of the day because the gospel always calls those things into question. See, if Jesus is Lord, then you are not and your honor cannot be supreme. This is what the Romans would hear. And if Jesus is Lord, then you, a Hebrew, are not set apart by you being a Hebrew. And if Jesus is Lord, then it's not about you becoming famous and you being seen. It's about being seen and known and loved by him. So as the gospel is proclaimed, these lies that we believe are being called out. And so, see, Paul knew this temptation. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews that that was tempted to put his ethnicity and that his people's heritage of being the special chosen people of God in the central part of his identity. And in fact, when Peter does this in Galatians chapter two, Paul calls him out because the the language says that that Peter separated himself, that Peter separated himself in Galatians chapter two, verse 12. And, And Paul said, that's wrong. You don't separate yourself. You have been set apart by God in Roman culture, was riddled with this temptation. They were the ones, philotemia, that loved self-honor, loved making themselves distinct and, and, and stood out. And so as those who are pursuing honor, they are now hearing the gospel. They are hearing that Paul is saying, you are set apart. I am set apart by the gospel, by Jesus, not by my honor. So the gospel calls out both false lies. Isn't this beautiful? And it also calls out the lie that you and I believe. The temptation that really persists in my own heart. See, for the majority of my pastoral career, I've always thought that fame was right around the corner. How evil and, and even embarrassing that is for me to, to admit. I wish I could tell you that the desire that I've always had as a pastor to be famous is so that more people would hear the gospel, but, but it's almost never been that honorable. That constantly I have been tempted by believing that, that the pulpit and the gospel itself is merely a pathway to the ultimate prize of being seen and known by people. So to be sure that we pastors face a unique season at the advent of social media, it actually becomes possible for a pastor to be famous, which is really a very odd thing when we really think about it. And this, this devilish pursuit, I realize, is not something that just befalls pastors, but any of us, in any of our work, in any of the ways that we live and move and have our being, whether it's in motherhood, whether it's in a marriage, or whether it's in my vocation, whether it's in my relationship, it's in all of those things, I can seek to be famous and be known for that. But what I've realized is that that always disappoints. It always depresses. It always devastates because it leads me to comparison. I had to confess just a couple of weeks ago to my wife, to one of our elders, that I had been, even through this COVID-19 pandemic, been tempted to compare myself with other pastors and begin to be desirous of having what they have if I believed that they had more influence, more attention than I had. They were doing something better than I was doing. This week, even, I was frustrated with my children because they were getting in the way of my sermon again, the thing that I trust to make me famous. Forgive me, God. See, pursuing fame never leaves me rejoicing, it always leaves me wanting more. It always leaves me unsatisfied, it always leaves me frustrated. Our worth, church, does not come from our heritage. This is what Paul needed to understand as a Hebrew. Our worth does not come from self-honor. That's what the Roman world needed to understand. Our worth does not come from fame. It's what we need to understand. It comes from the gospel. Our value is found not in separating ourselves from others, but being separated by God in himself, in Christ, for his purposes. Why is this good news? Because if Jesus is the set-apart one, when he sets you apart, it will actually satisfy you and last forever. See, every other false satisfaction, whether it be ethnic heritage, religious zeal, self-honor, or fame, those lights all fade. It is only the glory of Christ that lasts. So church, we need to admit that we are regularly tempted To set ourselves apart. In fact, even some of us right now, maybe for this entire sermon, have been saying, I'm not someone who tries to set myself apart. I'm not someone who does that. That's just other people. Literally in denying that we want to set ourselves apart, we are trying to set ourselves apart. This is how wicked and tricky this sin is. We constantly want to remove ourselves from people we think we are better than in order to find our value and worth away from them. But what God is saying is that it's only in me where you will be at peace. You won't have to hustle for your holiness. You won't have to hustle for your value. You won't have to search for your worth. I'll give it to you. Have you ever noticed in the scriptures that it almost is like you can't decide whether or not you're a total mess or you're completely loved? This is where I think ultimately that we err when it comes to fame. We either go into self-loathing when we don't have it, into anxiety, or when we get a little bit of it, we say, yeah, it's about time. We either go to self-loathing or self-glory. And and sometimes I think we even proof text that in the Bible because we find different passages, don't we, where we sometimes it seems like I'm his prized creation. He he knew me before the foundation of the world. And this sort of puffs up. But then in other places, it seems like, actually, I'm not that impressive. In fact, we're in Romans, for goodness sake. It will do this to us. Listen to this. Romans chapter 3, verse verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God all have turned aside together they have become worthless no one does good not even one that doesn't seem to go well for us that that seems like we're kind of a mess and we need a ton of help it's pretty bad in fact but Romans chapter 8 verse 31 hear this what then shall we say of these things if God is for us who can be against us he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also, with his great with him, graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Will you worship him today for that? That's incredible. So are we a mess? Or are we deeply and eternally intrinsically valued and loved by the God who set us apart? it seems we are. See, this is what's so brilliant about the gospel, is, is that we we are not chosen only by God's will. In, in, in other words, we're not chosen and that we are special. We are chosen and we are set apart through the work of Christ. If it was just the work, it may just be, well, you're just kind of work for me, and you're inconvenient, it's difficult, and I've got to go through it in order to purchase you, in order to to set you apart. But it's both. Not only does God choose, but on our behalf, he performs the work of the gospel. He chooses us by grace, and in Christ, he dies for us by, by, by grace. See, we are both. We are selected by God's sovereign kindness, and we are the beneficiaries of an extravagant act of love and mercy. That's the gospel. That's what it means to be received by Jesus himself. That's how we've been separated. Therefore, this is a set-apartness which satisfies and lasts because It's a separation based upon the character and work of God, not something that's here one day and gone the next, something that is eternal because it's about God. It's about what he has done. It's about him. It's about Christ, the set apart one who has set us apart by grace. Would you allow that to give you great confidence and peace today, church? See, when Jesus is separating the goats and the sheep, He is not simply separating those that he finds worthy from those that he doesn't, nor is he disregarding those whom he deems uh, unspecial and celebrating those who he believes are special. He is welcoming those into eternal life whom he set apart for his glory, for our joy before the foundation of the world. Each type of separation has an eternal trajectory. And it comes down to this. We either set apart ourselves, we separate ourselves for our own purposes and our own glory, or we allow by God's grace him to set us apart. Both are eternal, both last, and Jesus is sovereign over it all. As I told you at the start, this is not a sermon about humility. Rather, it's a sermon about being seen. And the good news is that when no one else sees you, the God of the Bible, by his gracious sovereign election, says that he does. The good news is that in Christ you are seen. In Christ you are loved. In Christ you are known. In Christ you are valued and saved. We are set apart because Jesus is set apart, because he is our gospel. He is our good news. Heavenly Father, We worship you for this. We thank you for this. Help us to believe this and to hide in this reality and this truth. In Jesus' name, amen.